Thank you, Joe and Carrie, Mitchell and Carol Ann. If you're in grades one through third, first through third grade, you can head to your class at this time. For the rest of us, would you take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of John with me? As we inch our way through the prologue of John's Gospel, we find nearly every theme that comes up in the entire Gospel brought up in part or introduced here in these first 18 verses. Today we're going to be considering... John 1, 14. And without qualification or reservation of any sort, no preacher's hyperbole or any kind of forced drama, I'm confident in saying that this verse of Scripture is one of, if not the most Profound and significant sentences to have ever been written in any language or any place in the history of the world. J.C. Ryle, in commenting on these verses, this verse in particular, said the passage is very short if we measure it by words. But it is very long if we measure it by the nature of its contents. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. This passage of Scripture is as inspired by the Holy Spirit as any other passage of Scripture, yet this one verse is one of the foundational planks of the house of our Christian faith. This is a load-bearing beam. It shapes our understanding of the entirety of Scripture. Take away the truth that's given in this passage of Scripture, and the cross of Christ is meaningless. The resurrection is fanciful. Future glory is wishful thinking and forgiveness of sins is unassured. It is this passage of scripture that kept the most brilliant minds in Christendom busy for hundreds of years. Gallons of ink have been used in the attempt to explain the meaning and significance of this verse. Orthodoxy in doctrine was established from here. Heresy was determined from here. The trajectory of the entire Old Testament culminates here. God's story of redemption finds its joyful climax here. Brothers and sisters, in our passage today, we have truth which we could legitimately spend the rest of our lives contemplating, believing, and loving. There's comfort in this passage. There's assurance, hope, and delight. Would you follow along as I read John 1:14 aloud for us? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Would you join me in prayer for a moment as we consider this together? Father, we are in desperate need of your help. Lord, this passage is beyond any of us. But Lord, we pray that you would use this passage for your purposes, 
this would not return void, and that you would minister grace to the hearers through this. And may we not only be hearers, but doers of the word. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. We, in fact, this morning are only going to be able to look at the very first phrase of verse number 14, and we'll leave it to Pastor Joe to pick up the pieces next week. (laughs) The phrase this morning that we're going to be examining is, and the word became flesh. It's a very simple phrase. In fact, we're going to take the next few minutes and just work word by word through it. That first word there, that in capital letters, word, you see there, comes from the Greek word logos. This is the same word that's used at the beginning of John's prologue in verse number one. That word, translated word, means word. But it can be used to describe many different ideas depending on your context. Pastor Joe explained this in great detail several weeks ago when he preached on John 1.1. I encourage you to go back and listen to that for more detail, but just for a brief summary and review. For the Jewish people, this concept of logos would have reminded them of the principle of wisdom found in God and the revelation from God. The prophets would embody the word of God. In the book of Proverbs, the word is personified as the wisdom that calls to any who will hear and come after her in order to find prosperity and safety, security. In Greek thought, this word logos was more associated with the principle of divine reason that's seen in the structure of the universe. The way this universe is ordered and organized speaks to a principle of reason that we call logos. In John, though, as he uses this concept of logos or word, there's a personal emphasis here. He's not merely using it to kind of elevate the revelation of God, nor is he referring to some sort of abstract principle of order in creation. Rather, he's talking about something distinct, something unique. The word was with God and the word was God. The word is fully divine, yet the word is somehow distinct. And this is going to become much more developed the further we go on in John's gospel. But suffice it to say for the time being that the word is the eternal son of the father. He is a person of the Trinity. After the word Logos, here in our verse of scripture in John 1.14, you next see the word became. This is also a very standard word. Scholars point out here that it means an action in time where something new has commenced. There's a new state, a change in nature. And for God to become does not indicate at all a loss of divinity, nor does it indicate any alteration in God himself, but there's a change here by the addition of human nature because, as we see next, the word became flesh. And one commentator notes that this word flesh is a strong, almost crude way of referring to human nature. You note that John does not say the word became man or that the word took a body. He chooses that form of expression which puts what he wants to say most bluntly. John was working the extremes of language, taking the highest, most loftiest expression associated with divinity that he could find in any culture. 
and saying that something happened with this word. It became something like you and like me. It took flesh. This concept that we are looking at is what we most often celebrate at Christmas. It is the doctrine of the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Even though there are only four words here that we've just briefly considered, there's a wealth of truth here. And for our purposes today, we're just going to consider two major points regarding the incarnation of Christ. The first point we're going to look at in a moment is that this, this incarnation is perfect. And then a little while later, we're going to consider the truth that the incarnation is purposeful. So the incarnation is perfect, and it is purposeful. And that will be our message this morning. And when I say that the incarnation is perfect, what I mean is that in Jesus Christ, we find every qualification necessary for our Savior. The great gulf that's fixed between us and the Creator God by nature and by our sin is so great that it takes a very special kind of Savior to rescue us. It takes one who is truly and perfectly God, yet truly and perfectly human. And this is a a doctrinal truth, and we need to spend a few minutes understanding the doctrine of the incarnation, of the nature of the person of Christ. The first thing that I want us to understand with respect to the doctrine of the incarnation is the mystery of it. This doctrine is a mystery in that God does not explain exactly or precisely how the incarnation happens. When the Bible says that the Holy Ghost came upon Mary and she conceived in her womb as a virgin, the Son of God, you have no idea what that means and neither does anyone else alive. And that's what makes it a mystery. There are boundaries to what we can understand. And even as we will attempt to define what God has given us, there is a point at which we can go no further and we should not go further because we've reached the edge of what is revealed to us. Rather, this is a doctrine not to be dissected, but to be understood to the best of our ability as we think on it, meditate on it, and pray over it, allowing it to do the great work of humbling us before God, causing us to worship, and to be confident in the salvation provided that it was sufficient for the need that we have. Not only is this doctrine a mystery, but there is a reality to it that we need to understand. God has graciously given us much truth. The fact that there is a point at which the incarnation can no longer be understood does not for a second mean that you and I ought to leave off thinking about the incarnation and coming as close to a solid understanding of it as we possibly can. This doctrine was given to you by God for you to understand to the best of your capabilities with the faculties that God has given you Because God loves you and wants you to receive comfort and joy and delight in the truth that he's shown you about himself, there is much for us to understand. And I would uh, hazard a guess that you and I have not yet come to the point where we have learned all that we can or ought to from this doctrine of the incarnation. 
And as we consider this truth, it would be helpful for us to remember, as Pastor Joe has so helpfully taught us each week through the Gospel of John, we have a huge responsibility as a church to carefully and accurately explain and defend this truth. As Pastor Joe said recently, the the consequences of missing this particular doctrine causes us to run the risk of substituting a false deity for the true one, to get wrong ideas in our head about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, puts our souls in danger. And so it is right and proper for us to give time and consideration to these truths. Now, in church history, there is an entire discipline just concerned with how this doctrine came to be understood and developed an understanding over time. And we clearly don't have time for that, but I want to just for a couple of minutes examine a couple of things that you and I should not say about the Incarnation. And then we'll talk about a couple of things we should say and keep it simple, but help us maybe grow a little bit in our understanding. The, the first things are the things that we, we need to not say. These are the boundaries to this doctrine. There are certain truths or uh, claims that we must reject in order to preserve the true doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to give you three of them, although there are more. The first is that Jesus was only human in appearance. This is wrong and it must be rejected by all true Christians that Jesus was human just in appearance. Sometimes, however, you and I unwittingly, in order to emphasize the divinity of Jesus, we kind of picture him in our brains or we describe him to others as something less than a true human. We act as though being around Jesus was like somebody who was kind of living in his own world all the time. Not, you know, kind of just in heaven with the Father and not really here with you and with me. Kind of distant from present reality. You know, somebody tells a joke and he's kind of late to the party, so to speak, and trying to catch up, figure out what everybody's laughing at because, you know, he's so spiritually minded. He's not really understanding humor. We kind of picture Jesus as, you know, somebody who maybe gets upset with people when they have physical limitations as though he doesn't understand about the need to stop on the road for a bathroom break or to get a drink of water or sometimes as if he knows that his disciples need these things but he doesn't need any of this. But even though we might think that picturing Jesus in such a way makes Jesus more transcendent as in like, oh, I've made Jesus so much more glorious because I'm ascribing to him so many divine qualities in my brain. It it actually doesn't help Christianity at all. It, It actually hurts and damages the gospel because if Jesus kind of looked like a human but wasn't a real human, it wasn't a true human, then he can't offer a proper sacrifice for the sins of humanity. He can't represent you and me as something less than human, like, like, oh, well, Jesus had, you know, skin and bones, but man, it was, it was more just, you know, to make us feel comfortable around God than for anything else. We must reject that Jesus was only human in appearance. We also need to reject the claim that Jesus was a true human in every sense, but he received divine status later. Many times people will associate this with his baptism. Like at his baptism, when the Spirit of God anointed Jesus, the Spirit of God indwelt him and raised him to a divine status at that point. And if this idea gets 
thrown around quite a bit in our modern day Christianity, um, especially in something of the, the word of faith movement and uh, uh, some of these uh, health, wealth, prosperity gospel teachers. And this is ridiculous. This is absurd. Um, a mere human who receives the spirit of God is still not God, no matter how far you elevate him. Because to be God, you have to be co-eternal with God. Merely receiving the Spirit of God makes Jesus no different than a better version of you as a human. Because he clearly followed God pretty closely in things like this. But to have a Jesus who looks more like you in that sense, not being divine, actually gives you less faith and assurance regarding your own salvation. Because I don't trust another human being to be able to atone for my eternal soul with an infinite God. Another idea that maybe comes up is some sort of a hybrid between the two. And it would be that Jesus was a human body, truly human in that sense, but he had a divine brain. So all the mental activity is the full life of God. So Jesus is human with respect to his body, but divine with respect to his mind and his mental status. But the reality is that the Bible teaches that Jesus is not some sort of a a human console with a divine information center. Even though it might sound better than saying he's human in appearance or that he receives a divine status later on, it still falls short of a true representative to stand in our place. God the Son did not become incarnate to make a new kind of creature that didn't exist prior, some sort of a God-man hybrid. Rather, in Christ, there was a full human nature and a full divine nature. He wasn't part human, wasn't part divine. For a full salvation, we need more than some sort of a God-human smoothie with blended attributes. The true doctrine taught in Scripture is this. That the person of Jesus Christ was truly God. John tells us this plainly by using the term the word here in our verse of scripture in John 1.14. The word became flesh. This is the same uppercase word as we said before that was used at the beginning in verses 1 and 2. That this word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without the word. Nothing was made that was made. But not only is he truly God, he is in fact truly human. For Jesus to be truly man, he had a true human body, a true and reasonable soul, and a human brain, a human mind. He was capable of suffering as you and I are. He grew and developed physically as we do. Jesus was susceptible to spraining his ankle walking from Capernaum to Bethsaida. He had to be taught how to speak when he was a toddler. He got hungry, thirsty, and tired. He had to practice skills in order to become a carpenter. He probably slipped with the knife at some point and cut his finger, and it hurt bad. As a child, he had to work to memorize Bible passages, just like you did. He's like you and me in every way except for sin. And so how do we describe this kind of a person? 
Well, Pastor Joe recently gave us great help by reviewing for us the doctrine of the Trinity. And he said that the most basic summary, accurate to Scripture, would be this. In the Trinity, we have three persons in one divine essence. You remember that from several weeks ago. The doctrine of the incarnation is similar, but it goes like this. In the incarnation, we have two distinct natures in one person. Two distinct natures in one person. You see, we don't believe that there are two persons in one entity. Like Jesus is some two-headed dragon where, you know, one minute you're talking to human Jesus and the next minute you're talking to God, Jesus, the Word. It's not like that. There's only one person of the Lord Jesus Christ and he has two distinct natures. A distinct, true, and full human nature and a distinct, true, and full divine nature perfectly existing in one person. There's a document called the Athanasian Creed. It was written in the 400s to early 500s, and this represents the culmination of hundreds of years of thought about the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Bible-believing Christians believe about the Incarnation. I'm just going to read a portion of it, and I would encourage you to go and read it on your own sometime, and actually to regularly review it, because it's a help to you. Here's what the Athanasian Creed says. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds. And man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man. Of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. Equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. He's one, not by the conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God. He's one altogether, not by a confusion of the substance, but by unity of the person. And here's the analogy, for as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. It's just a brief overview of how the incarnation is presented to us in scripture, that the word became flesh. And friends, that the word became flesh is a perfect doctrine because it perfectly provides and qualifies Jesus to save our souls from sin. And for the remainder of our message, I actually want us to consider the reality that this incarnation is purposeful. Because those things we just talked about is not just academic jargon. That's not just like some seminary lecture. Somebody probably should keep that written down somewhere and have in the back of their brain. But that's not, that's not what we need to know because, you know, my life is about what I'm doing and what's going on here and now. It's not just a, a maybe... Incarnation is not just a mountain of words that I just have to defend when provoked on it, but doesn't really make a difference. Friends, the doctrine of the incarnation is what opens up heaven to you. Now, this morning I want to offer you ten different brief reasons why the doctrine of the incarnation matters. Because I want us to understand that it is purposeful. That in understanding and believing and loving this truth, 
you and I have immeasurable riches in Christ. So we're going to briefly go through these, but 10 different benefits or results of the incarnation to show its purposefulness. The first is this. It's through the incarnation that Jesus becomes our great high priest. It's through the incarnation that Jesus becomes our great high priest. Hebrews 2.17. I'm going to read quite a few passages of scripture. If you want to turn to them, fine, but we're going to tick through them and uh, maybe even just jot them down or you can email me later and I'd love to give them to you. Through the incarnation, Jesus becomes our great high priest. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Listen, not by the blood, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. His humanity, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. It's a reference to his divinity. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And brothers and sisters, because the word became flesh, you have a high priest who always lives to make intercession for you and is merciful and faithful in every one of his thoughts towards you because he offers sacrifice by means of his own blood and he holds his office eternally by means of his divine eternality. Because of the incarnation, you have a high priest in Jesus who is Praying for you specifically at all times, right now included. His prayer requests to the Father are always answered yes by the Father. And every request that your high priest makes for you is made with the wisdom of omniscience and infinite love and lived experience. This is made possible by the Incarnation. Second purpose, through the incarnation, Jesus is our qualified representative of humanity. Through the incarnation, Jesus is our qualified representative of humanity. We see this in Romans chapter number 5, verses 17 and 19. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Do you see the analogous relationship there? Our kinship with Adam as his descendants qualified him to represent us before God. And so when Adam sinned, we all fell. When Adam dies, we all die. But friends, through the incarnation in the God-man Jesus, we have one who can represent you and me in grace and life and righteousness. 
The whole point of this passage of Scripture is that as Adam was a man to represent you in sin, so Christ, the God-man, represents you in a righteous relationship to God. The incarnation is the means by which Christ pulls us into union with himself by being our representative to God. It is the incarnation that makes Jesus a perfectly qualified representative of humanity. Third, through the incarnation, Jesus became the source of all righteousness, which we receive by faith. Fascinating passages of scripture that are often as confusing to me as they were to John the Baptist at the time when he experienced them. Matthew 3 and 4, we see the baptism and temptation of the Lord Jesus. John was flabbergasted that Jesus would ask to be baptized. And do you remember the response that Jesus gave to him? Permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. After that baptism experience, Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted of the devil. In the wilderness, Jesus underwent real humbling and suffering and real temptation. And Jesus came through all of those experiences with sinless perfection. Because of his righteousness, which he literally accomplished in his body and life on earth and merited before God, you and I can receive that righteousness by faith. Through the incarnation, Jesus accomplished all righteousness by both his active and passive obedience. You and I have no merit that we can claim before the Father because, as you recall, in our state of sinfulness, our very best works are as filthy rags before God. But Christ has merited all righteousness, and he imputes that righteousness to you and to me because he lived a perfect human life for you. It is the incarnation that allows Jesus to merit all righteousness to save your soul by imputing it to you when you receive it by faith. Next, through the incarnation, Jesus becomes our older brother. Hebrews chapter number 2, verses 9 through 11 tells us, but we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The passage we referenced earlier, Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The point of these passages of Scripture teaches us that as your brother... Jesus knows what an oppression it is to be tempted, weak, and hurting. Hebrews 2.9 teaches us that Christ underwent the suffering of death and tasted death on our behalf. He willingly submitted to being perfected for his role through suffering as you and I do. Jesus took solidarity with you and me as humans in pain and humans under stress, and humans facing temptation. 
Jesus' incarnation and his teaching and miracles did not put him in some ivory tower distant from our pain. Friends, you have not experienced an anguish or a grief that goes beyond the pain that Jesus has felt in his own person, in the garden and on the cross. You have not yet experienced or come up against a temptation that is of greater hostility and aggression than the assault of Satan on the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus knows. He knows. I don't know. I can't ever know. But you have a brother who knows what it's like to hurt and to be tempted. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Through the incarnation, Jesus becomes your older brother who knows. Through the incarnation, Jesus also then brings us into the family of God. Galatians 4, 3-7 through teaches us that in the same way also when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, listen, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so then you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. John 1.12, we looked at it just recently, last week. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, to have Christ for a brother is to have God as your father. And it's through the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ that God sent forth his son into the world, the fullness of time, to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that you and I would receive the adoption as sons. Richard Sibbs wrote in the 1600s, all things are ours by virtue of our adoption because we are Christ's and Christ is God's. There's a world of riches in this to be the sons of God. He goes on, and what a prerogative this is, that we have boldness to appear before God, to call him Father, to open our necessities, to fetch all things needful, to have the ear of the King of heaven and earth, to be favorites in the court of heaven. Next, through the incarnation, Jesus is our conqueror over Satan and death. Again, in Hebrews chapter number 2, 
Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The song we sang just this morning from In Christ Alone, the phrase goes, no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. The reason we can sing that with joy and faith is because Jesus was flesh and blood like you and me. Through the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, the God of this world is overthrown and the fear of death is broken. Jesus died physically, truly, literally, and then physically rose again. And because of that literal, true, human death and resurrection, you and I are assured that our physical, actual, literal bodies will also be raised from the dead. One pastor from the 1600s named Thomas Watson put it this way, Christ did not rise from the dead as a private person, but as the public head of the church. And the head being raised, the rest of the body shall not always lie in the grave. Christ's rising is a pledge of our resurrection. Only one who is truly God and truly man could rescue us from our captivity to Satan through the fear of death. But through the incarnation, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Next, through the incarnation, Jesus is our rescuer and our redeemer from the slavery of sin. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Romans chapter number 6 says this, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Friends, every sin has been defeated by Christ. No ordinary man, no true man, could break the power of sin over our lives in such a way that we are no longer slaves of sin. Only one who was both God and man truly could accomplish this for us. Through the incarnation as well, Jesus is our perfect revelation of the Father. Colossians 1, 15 and 19 says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. John 14, the familiar passage in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 17, in Jesus' own prayer to God before his passion, he says this, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you've sent me. Verse 26 of John 17, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The truth taught here is that many prophets came before Christ 
and they declared inerrant, inspired revelation from God. Some of them even saw visions of God's glory and wrote about the experience. We have the stories of Moses and of Isaiah. But none of those human prophets were in the Father and had the Father in them. Jesus takes away the middleman. He's not one who merely sees the sights and comes back with a lesser version of it because of the limitations of language. Though Jesus is the mediator between God and man, to see Jesus is to see the Father. Because in Jesus, the Word became flesh. And I believe this is why, as we'll continue to study in a few weeks, that John says that in seeing Jesus, we have seen glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Two more purposes to the incarnation. Through the incarnation, Jesus provides an example of how to live as a Christian. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24 says this, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The physical human suffering of Christ provides the foundation for how our Christian life ought to go. He provided an example that you should follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus does not call you to carry a cross that he did not carry first. Even though he was in the form of God, he willingly took the form of a servant so that we would follow in his footsteps. Brothers and sisters, when Paul exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and worthy of our calling, we have one that we can look to for an example. Ephesians 5, Therefore, beloved, little children, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, even as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The final purpose in the incarnation that we're going to examine is that Jesus, through the incarnation, is our rightful king from David's line. Luke 1, 31 to 33, in the announcement to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the most high. Already we have his true divinity and humanity. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the seed of the woman promised to Eve. He's the offspring promised to Abraham who blesses the world. He's the ruler that was promised to come from the line of Judah. He's the faithful son that God promised to David. And Jesus, the incarnate God, the son of Mary, descended from David, is the true son of Adam who can rightfully take the throne. I don't know how many of you were able to watch it. It was early in the morning, but maybe you saw the highlights of the coronation of King Charles III in the United Kingdom. 
It was a fascinating service, had so much scripture in it and prayer. It was very interesting to watch parts of that. It's unbelievable. The gold and the jewels, the fanfare, the majesty. It's such that watching it, you can almost get swept up in the excitement. You recognize something of the weightiness of the kingship. But friends, with respect, the reign of Christ as the king from David's throne makes that coronation look like children playing dress up. In the book of Revelation, we hear loud voices from angels and from saints triumphantly crying out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. and He shall reign forever and ever. There's a lot of points in a lot of scripture passages. I'm just going to briefly help us recap them to understand the truth that the doctrine of the incarnation matters for you. Through the incarnation, Jesus becomes our great high priest. Through this truth, Jesus is our qualified representative of humanity. It's through this that Jesus became the source of all righteousness which we receive by faith. Through the incarnation, Jesus becomes our older brother and then he brings us into the family of God. He's our conqueror over Satan and death as the God-man. And it's through the incarnation that Jesus can be our rescuer and redeemer from the slavery of sin. Through the incarnation, Jesus is our perfect revelation of the Father. He has opened up access, as we have sung about this morning, to come before the holy of holies. It's through the incarnation that Jesus provides an example of how to live as Christians. And it's through the incarnation that Jesus is perfectly qualified to ascend the throne of David and receive the kingdoms of the world as his own. This is a vital doctrine For even what it means to be a Christian, it's certainly weighty, it's certainly deep, but it's beautiful. Gives us great comfort and joy. This is the reason we have so many riches in Christ. It's because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and came in the likeness of men, taking the form of a servant being found in fashion as a servant, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There aren't any commands in our passage of Scripture this morning. There's not like a checklist of things you have to go home and do as a result of this. But I want to give you some suggestions of how you can apply this to your own life. The first is this. I I would really encourage you to study this doctrine. You would not believe the amount of material that we did not talk about today with respect to the incarnation. You have not yet plumbed the depths of knowledge to be had. And the reality is, is that greater knowledge of truth from Scripture is not a bad thing. Sometimes I think that as Christians, we we look at theological truths like this and we think, ah, if I... If I learn too much about this, it might kill my love for God and my just my just my simple joy in being a Christian. And I am so thankful for 
Those people who have a desire that their joy would always be found very simply in faith in Jesus Christ. But I would just point out that you don't use that same kind of logic with anything else in your life. Nobody watches football and says, oh, I love football so much. I watch it every Sunday, every Friday, whenever it's on, I'm there. And I've been watching it for 20 years. I do not understand the rules of this game. 20 years and I have no clue what's going on. I'm glad some people do. I'm glad some people have that rule book tucked in their back pocket to whip that out when they need to, but I do not know the rules. And I don't really know the players or even where these teams are from or what's going on, but I don't want to learn much about it because I don't want to kill the love that I have for this game. It's a pretty absurd way to think. It doesn't make very much sense. When you love something, you dive deep on it. You study it out. Friends, do you want to know a very simple way that you can increase your joy in Christ? Your peace in trials? It's to study his word more. (laughs) The more you know, the greater foundation, the greater your stability, the greater your love and joy and peace in believing. Just make a quick recommendation on a really practical level. Outside at our resource center, we have five reading tracks on display there that are specifically designed to help you, in a super accessible way, go deeper on several different really helpful Christian uh, aspects of our lives, okay? There's an entire reading track of accessible, readable, manageable, not seminary books to help you understand better the gospel and spiritual disciplines, Christian living. I would recommend two in particular. There's one on theology, which is going to help you understand the doctrine of the incarnation better. I would recommend that you look at taking that track as a personal project for the rest of the year. There's also one, uh, it's one on church history. And one of the great things about studying church history is you get to hear the greatest of Christianity's teachers and preachers help you understand the Bible better. It's great for developing wisdom and discernment. I think that it would be a blessing to you and it would actually give you greater understanding of the Bible and deepen your faith and your joy by knowing it. So just as a practical step, that might be one way that you would start. There's one in particular that's called Know the Creeds and Councils and then there's another one under the church history called Know the Heretics and those things will help kind of guide you through some of the specific nuances of the doctrine of the incarnation. And that would be a wonderful thing. I think it would be very beneficial for your spiritual life. So study this doctrine. Another would be we need to be humbled in this doctrine by recognizing what it took to save us. You see, the incarnation is not just a series of cool sentences or a cool thing to be able to talk about with your friends. The infinite glory of the eternal word who then became flesh is a stark reminder of the depth of our sinfulness. There was not a simple solution to the problem of your redemption. Friends, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that because God is omnipotent, everything is easy. 
I would suggest to you that there was nothing about the garden or the cross that was easy to Jesus. That there was no other solution to redeem humanity other than for God himself to become one of us, to live perfectly on our behalf in a way that we could never live. As the phrase goes, to die, to pay a debt that you and I could never pay. We think about the hymn that we sing, how deep the Father's love for us. You remember those lines that go, it was my sin that nailed him there? Remember the line that says, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers? It's true. It took a truly divine nature and a truly human nature in one Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, to save you. Allow the weight of the incarnation to humble you in your love for your incarnate Savior who loved you long before you loved him. Maybe, in fact, you would spend a couple extra minutes at lunch today with the family or with friends, and maybe just go around the table in prayer, specifically confessing how sinful you are and acknowledging to God how great and costly was the salvation that provided for your soul. One more application for us this morning would be to suggest that it's through the incarnation that you have free access to God. You know that in the incarnation, as Charles Wesley put it in his hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, God and man now reconciled. This is what is taught in scripture, that he has reconciled us to God, creating one new man in place of the two. He came and preached peace to us who were far off. Jesus, your high priest, your older brother, your savior, your rescuer, your conqueror, your champion, has entered the holy of holies in the temple of heaven into the manifest glory and presence of the almighty eternal God. And that God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has torn that curtain down, gone into that throne room of God and turns and motions with his hand for you to come and follow up after him into the presence of God to enjoy communion with God. That when you are faced by the stresses and pressures of life, this priest who prays for you at every second of every day without tiring as a human calls you his brother or his sister to God the Father. And God the Father joyfully answers those prayer requests with, yes, that was exactly my will for your brother and for your sister. And Jesus, in those prayers, calls you to come up and make your own requests to God and promises that through the work of your intercessor, he will provide everything that you need for life and godliness. That every time you come before the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need, you will find that God gives abundantly, liberally, generously. He upbraideth not, as the King James says. Ask in faith and it will be given. 
These are not the realities that we live consciously with, though. Is that not the case? That prayer for us is more often a chore than a delight? That the pursuit of intimate fellowship with our Creator is something that has us always checking our watch to see how long we've been doing it. Friends, Christ didn't provide all righteousness for you so that you wouldn't have to read the Bible or pray. Christ died for your sins so that you could have fellowship with God through those means of grace, anticipating the day of glory when he receives you to himself. It might be that you're here this morning and all of this is a bit confusing and overwhelming because we're talking about quite a lot, but maybe a couple of thoughts have really crystallized in your mind. One is that you truly are a great sinner who has no chance of rescue apart from God, and you are recognizing that Jesus Christ is the only possibility for salvation. If that's you this morning, I want you to know that Christ, through his death on the cross, atoned for all of your sins. And whether you're a visitor or you've been coming to this church for 20 years, you can right now cast your confidence and trust for salvation onto the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will save you from all of your sins. He will adopt you into the family of God, become your older brother. He will become a priest for you who goes before God and makes intercession on your behalf. He will guarantee eternal life through grace if you trust him. Say, well, what should I do then? Reject the sin that keeps you from God. Reject any kind of a loyalty you might have to your own selfish ambitions and sins and instead give yourself wholeheartedly to the Savior who died to save you from those things. You can't go to heaven holding on to your sin as you drag it along behind you. Friends, Christ came with good news that he can sever that bond with sin. He can save you from it and save you from its enslaving power of your life and forgive you and provide grace to cover all of the shame for the wrongs that you've done. Would you trust in Christ today? If you're here and you're still a little confused on what that means, you can come and talk to me after the service. Any one of our pastoral staff would love to chat with you. Or you could even just after the service is over, lean to the person who's sitting closest to you on the pew and ask them how you can become a Christian, how you can be saved from your sins. And they would love to show you from the Bible how that can be true for you in your life. Friends, this doctrine is one that deserves our attention, our meditation, our love, our joy, and our faith. May God give us the grace to love, believe, and obey this truth. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, thanks for your kindness towards us in giving us your word. We thank you for the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, who saved us from our sins. We thank you that... Jesus was truly man and truly God in one person. And that as such, he is perfectly qualified in every respect to be our savior and to grant us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I pray, Father, for each person here this morning that your spirit would omnisciently and all-powerfully meet every need from your word, whether for salvation for love and joy and peace in pursuing Christ, for enjoying the fellowship with God, for a greater understanding of your truth, would you prompt each of us to a greater delight in what we've been given. With your heads bowed and eyes closed,
we're just going to take just a moment as we do here at Community each week for you to just spend some time in prayer and talk to the Lord and open up your heart to him based on what you've heard from his word.